Good evening, listeners, and welcome back to Superstitions, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Alastair Murden, and on this show, I explore the curious rituals and odd beliefs that haunt societies around the world. Today's superstition has been haunting the world for literally thousands of years. It all started in 44 BCE, when Roman senators plunged dozens of daggers into dictator Julius Caesar. If ancient historians are to be believed, he was twice warned that March 15th, known as the Ides or Middle of March, would be his downfall. But he chose not to listen. Since then, the day has been seen as cursed, or at the very least, unlucky. There have been multiple tragic March 15ths throughout history, including in World War II and, more recently, the Syrian Civil War. Though, for my money, nothing's quite as historic as the original assassination of Caesar. Only, on superstitions, we like to show how these beliefs might apply to us in the modern day. So we go now, not to the halls of ancient Rome, but to a different palace, one where drag queens, rather than Roman senators, compete for glory. You can find episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free exclusively on Spotify. Coming up, two young performers vie for legendary status. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Brutus was a virgin. No, not that kind of virgin. He'd never been to a ball before. He was only 18, after all. Freshly emancipated from his bigoted parents, he was determined to dive headfirst into the scene. His white skin, small, twinkish figure, and bleach-blonde hair with buzz sides made him stand out amongst his other competitors. They were mostly older, black, butch queens. It was a world that didn't quite belong to him, but it welcomed him anyway. And the young newcomer wanted to show the old-timers a thing or two. He and his best friend Cassius were at the parade, a local ballroom competition. Cassius had a similar vibe to Brutus, a lean twink with buzzed hair. He was black, though, and he had been voguing for a few years now. He just loved to perform and didn't want to have to think about themes and costumes and category rules. When they first met, 
Brutus begged to join his house, saying that he could handle everything else if Cassius would handle the choreography. It was their first time performing together, along with three of their fellow housemates. Collectively, they were known as the House of Bespoke. This was the first ball of the year. Now January, the season would go for five months before a final showdown in May. It was time. The music changed. The crowd grew quiet. Brutus waited anxiously backstage in his costume and makeup. The category was bizarre, and they certainly looked the part. He was dressed like a sexy femme version of Pikachu. Cassius was Charizard. Now, it was all down to their performance. Brutus's heart raced, his stomach churned, his skin felt heavy and suffocating under layers of yellow makeup. But then he heard it. The announcer cried, Give it up for the House of Bespoke! Brutus snapped into action, shooting through the curtain and out onto the runway. Two balconies filled with people looked down on them from all sides. It was do or die. He galloped down the runway, using his hands to create enthralling lines from his red cheeks to his lightning bolt tail. Cassius embodied dragon energy, creeping across the floor on all fours, breathing imaginary fire before beginning his floor work. He spun around on his butt, humped the ground, shot his legs into the air. The crowd went wild. The judges waved their batons in the air, signaling that the House of Bespoke had arrived. They received perfect tens. Tens! Tens across the board. They all hugged one another in triumphant joy, but they were soon ushered off the stage. And Brutus heard the announcer cry out, Now give it up for the House of Caesar! Brutus and Cassius gaped at each other. The House of Caesar was notorious in this community. They'd won more trophies than any other house. They ran out into the crowd to watch. Julius Caesar, the house mother, led her troops out onto the runway. She was dressed as a Venus flytrap, and they were dressed as glamorous flies. As they danced, each one twirled into her orbit, and she lifted them up, flipped them over, and slid them down her back as if she were eating them. It was the most fab thing Brutus had ever seen. As the House of Caesar struck their final pose, the crowd exploded. The judges stood up from their thrones, waving perfect tens. It was no surprise when, at the end of the night, the tie went to Julius. The House of Caesar was named the Dominant House. Brutus stormed away from the runway and over to the bar. That trophy should have been ours, Brutus screamed. Cassius tried to console him. We did great. You should be proud. It's not enough to be proud. I want to win. Brutus turned and headed for the door, his yellow tail wagging behind. Over at the other end of the bar, Julia celebrated with her fellow butch queens. You're the Empress! You're the Empress! They shouted. I don't know about Empress, she said. Maybe Goddess is more my speed. They all burst out in praise, snapping their fingers in supplication. 
Julius wanted to keep soaking it in, but first, she had to pee. It would take a few minutes to figure out how to do that in this Venus flytrap getup. She excused herself and headed for the bathroom. But before she reached the door, a glamorous figure turned around in her seat at the bar. It was Leonida Lorencia, a queen who had already earned the coveted legendary status in the ballroom scene. She was dressed in a fab, gold, floor-length gown that showed a lot of cleavage. I saw you up there. You were cute, she said. Thanks, Julius scowled. But I also heard you talking to your little friends. All I'm saying is, don't get cocky. It's a long season. If you're not careful, your butt will be wasted by March. Better beware. Oh, honey, please. I got this, Julius said. Leonida gave her a look like, okay then, and turned back around. Julius shook her head. All these old queens trying to tell her what to do, how dare they? She was Julius Caesar. Back at their apartment, Brutus, Cassius, and the rest of the House of Bespoke were busy sewing designs for next week's ball. I want those seams perfect. Perfect! You got me? Brutus snapped at his house members. Cassius was the house mother, but Brutus was their father, and tonight, Daddy wasn't playing around. Brutus was determined to win. Next week's category was Vogue Femme, and they had to look good. And they did. They wore thigh-high leather boots and shimmering gold leotards. Their choreography was perfectly in sync. They incorporated hands, spins and dips, floor performance, duck walk and catwalk. They would have won. But of course, House of Caesar was at the ball too. Julius showed up in utility overalls and heels and yet somehow still looked cute with one strap dangling off her shoulder, enticing the crowd. It was her limitless confidence that drove Brutus mad. Even more infuriating was her skill. Her face looked playful. Her body moved simply with elegance and grace. Brutus had to work for a week on immaculate costumes while Cassius drilled the house children on the choreo. It took two of them to be half as good as Julius. Things continued like this for the next few weeks. They served executive realness and Julius served senior executive realness. They served octopus hands and Julius served nonapus hands. They served runway look after runway look and Julius still ran away with the top prize. After so many defeats, Brutus and Cassius commiserated at the bar. I hate losing. Hate it, hate it, hate it, Brutus said. Come on, girl, said Cassius. Do you really need to win that bad? Be grateful for all you've got in front of you. Brutus crossed his arms, pouting. What's that? Well, it's your first year and you've mostly gotten perfect tens. We've got dope children and you've got this fine gentleman that you see before you. Cassius smiled, gesturing to himself. I guess. I guess you know what you're talking about. But still, I want to win. Brutus grabbed Cassius' hands and shook them. <sighs> well, I don't know what to tell you, because the only way we could do better is if Julius didn't compete. 
Brutus froze, staring into Cassius's eyes. Oh no, Cassius said. We ain't killing Julius. OMG, I don't want to kill her, Brutus said. He leaned in to whisper. But remember Caligula from House Claudian? Uh, that queen who broke her wrist? Brutus nodded. Yep, she is out for the rest of the season. You want to break Julius's wrist? Or, you know, something like that. Cassius shook his head and sipped his drink. He couldn't believe they were even talking about this. But once they got home, Brutus kept bugging him about it. All it would take was a small bit of sabotage backstage and they would be on their way to becoming legendary queens. And when Cassius thought about it, that did sound pretty good. Standing up on the stage, holding that trophy, getting all kinds of respect in the community. It wouldn't take much to injure Julius. They hatched the plan in secret, whispering to each other on the fire escape so the house children couldn't overhear. They just assumed the two were knocking boots. The plan was for Brutus to do the deed. He'd use a metal nail file to saw into the back of one of Julius's heels. She always waited to put them on until going up, and the file was thin enough to where the incision wouldn't be noticeable. At least, not until she went on stage and the heel gave way. Julius arrived at the ball in a faux fur coat that seemed to swallow her whole. Her house children followed her, carrying bags full of garments for the night's performance. The category was Lucky Femme. It was March 15th, after all, two days before St. Patrick's Day. Julius made her way through the crowd, heading backstage. Just as she was about to open the door, Leonida appeared, dressed in a sexy green business suit with glittering gold buttons. March 15th, Queen. Not a good day to be up on that stage, she said. I have a reputation to maintain. Out of my way, Grandma, Julia said. Grandma? Okay then, suit yourself. Leonida faded back into the crowd. Julius snapped her fingers and the House of Caesar followed her through the dark hallway that led to the dressing rooms. As she turned the corner, she arrived at her makeup table only to find Brutus bespoke at her mirror. Um, can I help you? She asked. This was her territory. Brutus turned around, shocked to see her. Julius, I... Sorry, I, uh... I just thought it'd be good luck if I looked in your mirror. Sorry. Julius softened. Oh... That's cute, little queen. Honey, your looks ain't bad. They're not on my level, but keep at it. You'll win some trophies. Eventually. Brutus bristled at this, but he kept his composure, smiling back. Thanks, queen. I want to be just like you someday. Then he ran off to front of house. Julius just shrugged. She sat down at the table and opened her makeup chests. One of her children grabbed her heels from beneath the table, then fastened them to her legendary feet. Coming up, Julius learns to fear the Ides of March. 
The I-5 Strangler, the Southside Dentist, the Berlin Butcher. Meet the many faces of evil in the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Every Monday and Thursday, take a journey through the origin, evolution, and madness of a real-life murderer, exploring the reasons why they lived to kill. Using extensive research and details you won't hear anywhere else, Serial Killers takes an in-depth look at the horrors beyond the headlines. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that left an indelible stain on history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. Julius Caesar, queen mother of the local ballroom scene, took the stage. She was wearing a totally glamorous red gown with accents that curled up around her shoulders like some sort of glittering suit of armor. She prowled down the runway, her six-inch heels practically stabbing into the stage. She'd done this over a thousand times, and it showed. She had no reason to doubt herself or her wardrobe. Watching from the audience were Brutus and Cassius bespoke. Tired of losing to Julius night after night, Brutus snuck into her dressing room and sabotaged one of her heels. It wasn't noticeable just looking at them. But now, with Julius putting her full weight on the stiletto, it was only a matter of time. Julius turned hard, whipping her hair. She gave the judges her best hands, face, and legs. She hopped down to begin her duck walk. But as she did, her right heel snapped clean off, sending her crashing down hard onto her butt. She looked around in complete shock. The music shut off. The room was totally silent. Then... One by one. Each member of the audience jeered and laughed, happy to see the haughty queen finally brought low. Even the announcer got in on it. He laughed into his mic saying, mmm, looks like someone's too good to check her wardrobe. Queen can't even walk in heels. The audience only laughed more. No, no, Julius screamed. It wasn't my fault. Something happened. Look, look. She held up the heel, but no one was paying attention. The announcer turned to the judges. Judges scores, he asked. One by one, they lifted their fans, giving Julius straight zeros. Their faces showed nothing but contempt. How could you? Julius begged. You love me. I am this stage. But they all looked away. Please, someone, she said. Won't you look? It wasn't my fault. One by one, she held up the heel to the people in the crowd, including her own house members. And one by one, they turned their heads away. Finally, her eyes fell on Brutus. His face was stoic, his eyes strangely watery. She held out the heel. See? See? She insisted. A beat passed, and Brutus 
turned his head as well. Julius gasped. She lost all hope. Seeing even the younger generation turn on her was too much. You too, little queen, she said. Then she collected herself and ran from the stage. She was never seen in the ballroom again. That night, Brutus and Cassius sat again on their fire escape, whispering to each other. I don't know what your problem is. It worked perfect, Cassius hissed. Did you see the look on her face? Brutus responded. It was like we stabbed her in the heart. What do you care? Do you think she wouldn't do the same to us? Brutus was still crying. I just, I wonder, is that our fate? Will we end up just like Julius one day? Cassius rolled his eyes. I don't know, but we gotta get to grace before we can worry about falling from it. Brutus wiped the tears from his eyes, nodding, trying his best to look confident. But he had a sinking feeling that somehow this wouldn't end well for them. Back at the ballroom, the staff was closing up shop for the night, but one person lingered. It was Leonida Lorencia, ballroom legend. She stood on stage, studying the runway. It looked like it always had to her, but her instincts told her something was off. The way Julius had gone down, it wasn't like anything she'd seen before, especially not from such a strong performer. It was then that she saw it. The heel laying on the ground next to the stage, right where Julius had left it. She walked over, picked it up, and studied it. Strange. The heel had broken, no doubt about that. But it broke halfway down the stiletto. It was a clean break too, except for one end. Normally, when a heel broke, it was up at the top where it connects to the shoe. Maybe the material could be defective, but if that were the case, then the break wouldn't be this clean. It would be jagged and random. No. This was sabotage. Leonida didn't much like Julius Caesar. She was arrogant, always called her grandma, and never listened. Leonida had warned her before not to perform on the Ides of March. It was bad luck, and this proved her point. But Leonida also loved the culture of ballroom, its integrity, and to think that someone had tainted the results like this, it didn't sit right with her. She needed to get to the bottom of it. The following week, the House of Bespoke arrived at the ballroom ready to play. The category was Dante's Inferno, they came dressed as sexy, horrific demons. The category did nothing to help with Brutus's guilt, but he wanted to do Cassius proud. He'd worked on some amazing choreography to pair with Brutus's incredible costumes. When it was time, they spread out on the stage, their children doing their best duck walk while Brutus and Cassius showed off their armor and demonic capes. They hissed and preened, dropped to the ground and threw their legs around in the air in sync to the music. 
The crowd went wild, and the judges did too. They received perfect tens, and at the end of the night, they were named the Dominant House. They won their first trophy, a massive, crystalline prize that was as big as Brutus. As he held it in his arms, his house children lifted him up onto their shoulders, chanting his name. It was everything he'd ever wanted. And yet, he couldn't quite be happy. What he had done to Julius still gnawed at him. He almost felt like Julius was still there, watching him, haunting him, waiting to drag him to hell where he belonged. But he kept these thoughts to himself, forcing a smile as the ballroom cheered him on. Later, he celebrated at the bar with the other houses. They called him Empress and bought him drinks until he had to go to the bathroom. He took off down the bar, but right before he reached the end, Leonida appeared before him, a look of disapproval on her face. Congratulations, she snapped. Uh, thanks, Brutus said. Pretty young house to be winning like that. Almost like you don't have any competition. Brutus immediately got flustered. The look on his face confirmed Leonida's worst suspicions. Sorry, I gotta pee, he said, pushing past her. As he fled to the bathroom, she followed him with her gaze, continuing to read the guilt on his face. It hadn't been that hard to figure out. Who benefited the most from getting Julius Caesar out of the picture? Now, she just had to decide what to do next. Weeks passed, and the House of Bespoke continued to dominate the ballroom. They won trophy after trophy. Brutus and Cassius were on their way to becoming the youngest legendary performers in history. But after each ball, Brutus's chest felt heavy. Sometimes it was so bad he almost couldn't breathe. He just kept seeing Julius's face over and over again in his mind's eye. One night, he lay in bed with Cassius, sweating, staring at the ceiling. Am I going crazy? He wondered. Would he just never be able to stop thinking about Julius and whether he was next? He continued tossing and turning. Cassius woke up. You still thinking about Julius? He asked. Obby! Brutus yelled. Sorry, but what if she's like haunting me? What are you talking about? She's alive, wherever she is. Do we even know that for sure? Cassius turned over. I guess not. Cassius was doing nothing to calm Brutus's nerves. Brutus continued to lie there, afraid. He was at the top, had everything he ever wanted, and it felt miserable. Finally, May arrived. It was the last competition of the year. Whoever was named the dominant house would retain the title for the entire summer. If the house had bespoke one, then Brutus and Cassius would become legendary. Brutus stayed up two nights in a row working on the costumes. It was Diva's night that week, and they were taking inspiration from Donna Summer. The house children would be wearing gold sequined gowns with an Egyptian influence, while Brutus would be decked out in a white feathered dress with a floral crown. 
They were the kinds of outfits that would be on album covers. But with each stitch, his stomach churned more and more, thinking of the lengths he went to for his glory. The night of the performance arrived. The various houses got dressed and applied makeup backstage. Brutus was at Julius's old mirror, the very spot where he had slit her heel. As he applied some lipstick, his heart began to race faster. Sweat beaded around his wig line, even though he'd already powdered it. Suddenly, a face appeared in the mirror. His hand slipped, drawing a line of lipstick across his cheek. It was Julius. He was sure of it. But when he looked behind him, there was no one there. You okay? Cassius asked, leaning over from his own table. Brutus couldn't get any words out. Cassius leaned forward, grabbing the sides of his head. You've got this, okay? You've got this! Brutus shook his head yes, but really, he wanted to cry. Cassius wiped off the lipstick and helped him to reapply. Before long, they were standing behind the curtain, ready to go on. Brutus's children wrapped a white fur cape around his shoulders and placed the floral crown on his head. Next to him, Cassius was just as glamorous in rainbow fur, just like Donna. It was time. The curtain was peeled back. The House of Bespoke took the runway. They duck-walked right from the start, bouncing along in six-inch heels and with pounds and pounds of heavy makeup. They were expert dancers and thin. Cassius hadn't let them eat anything but protein shakes this week. Their bodies could handle it. Well, except for maybe Brutus's. He didn't remember to drink his shakes, and the lack of sleep was getting to him. Everything seemed warm and glowy, like he was drunk, like he was living with a one-second delay. In the ballroom, the world always swirled around him. But as he leapt up and then fell back to the ground again and again, it swirled more than usual. Colors and shapes lost all meaning, changing and combining in odd ways. His body kept moving, but his mind was focused on a vortex of light erupting in his field of vision. There, at the center, was Julius, emerging from the crowd, her face like a demon's, full of flame. It lowered down toward him and opened its mouth, showing fangs. No! No! She's coming for me! She's coming! He curled up into a ball on the stage while the rest of his house kept dancing around him. But then, members of the crowd noticed. The music stopped. The announcer commented, saying, What in the sweet Jesus? Cassius ran to his side, but he was inconsolable, continuing to scream. The entire crowd looked on in shock, except for one individual, sitting at the bar, who wasn't surprised at all. Leonida Lorencia sat at her usual post, sipping a martini. These young queens might have been good, but she was the best. It wasn't hard to replicate Julius's signature makeup. She was quick, too. No one questioned her when she glided through backstage, bent down to look over Brutus's shoulder and into his mirror, and then ran back out to the bar. She was right to assume that it'd be enough to throw Brutus off his game. But she had no idea that when he saw her again, out in the crowd, he'd have a meltdown. But then again, that was the thing about the Ides of March. 
It was a curse for the victim and the perpetrator as well. Though Julius had fallen from grace that night, Brutus's fate was also sealed. It had only been a matter of time. All Leonida could do was shake her head. What part of beware didn't these queens understand? CNN cites four major examples of the Ides of March being unlucky. March 15, 1889 saw the death of 200 American and German sailors in the South Pacific. March 15, 1939 saw the Nazi invasion of Czechoslovakia. March 15, 1941 saw a historic blizzard in the northern Midwest United States that killed 71 people. And finally, on March 15, 2011, Syria saw the beginning of a brutal civil war. The Smithsonian cites a few more unlucky Ides of March, namely the vicious 1360 French attack on England and the 1917 abdication of Tsar Nicholas II, which might make you think that the date really is a bad omen. But the reality is that, proportionally, the Ides of March isn't that unlucky. Julius Caesar was killed more than 2,065 years ago. If we can only pinpoint 6 to 10 unlucky March 15th since then, then most of the time, March 15th is just as lucky or unlucky as any day of the year. A dedicated historian could probably pick out another hundred or so unlucky March 15ths, but then the same could be done for any day of the year. April 14th saw the assassination of Abraham Lincoln in 1865 and the fatal crash of the Titanic in 1912. So why don't we see April 14th or any other date as unlucky as March 15th? Ultimately, we owe this superstition to Shakespeare himself, not the Romans. Greek historian Plutarch does claim that Caesar was warned he would be attacked on the Ides of March. But it was Shakespeare who dramatized this and put it into the Western imagination. The soothsayer that warns Caesar is described as having a tongue shriller than all the music. Performances of the play often portray the soothsayer as especially creepy. One prominent example is the 1953 film adaptation starring Marlon Brando as Mark Antony. There, the voice of the soothsayer sounds like that of a ghost as he wails, Beware the Ides of March. How then could we not be spooked by March 15th? Shakespeare is one of history's greatest writers, and his portrayal of a 2066-year-old murder frightens us even 423 years after it was written. Thanks again for listening to Superstitions. You can find more episodes of Superstitions and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until next time, be wary of the things you cannot explain. 
Superstitions is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Superstitions was written by Greg Castro, with writing assistance by Stacey Nemec, fact-checking by Anya Bailey, and research by Brian Petras. I'm Alastair Murdoch. Their names have become larger than life. Their crimes, some of the most heinous in history. Their stories, examined each week on the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Every Monday and Thursday, journey past the headlines and into the minds and motives of the murderers who forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Listen free only on Spotify.